Hello, and welcome to 10 Very Big Books, a Malazan read-through podcast. My name's Josh Baker, and I'm on book eight of this series. With me today is the person who put us through this hell. That's right, everybody, Peter Bond. Good morning, good morning, good morning. Hello, hello, hello. How are you? How are you? How are you? I'm bad for the three. Yeah, that was great. Uh, up next, hopefully a little less echoey, we have our awesome producer and editor, AJ Filari. Wow, wow. I'm awesome, and you said my last name right. Kind of. I, I almost was going to say Fillory again because I like doing it. <laughs> I could tell. I, I, I could feel it coming out. Thank you. Hello. And of course, lastly but not leastly, we have India Jones in the flesh. Hello. I'm hungover. India's battling today and we're very happy for her to be here. <laughs> Before we get in, we usually do banter, but I have no ideas. The Discord said I should ask what everyone's favorite Minecraft block is. <laughs> But I, could, um. I don't know if I could name many. <laughs> I like the least. I've never played Minecraft in my life, Josh. Please. Yeah. Yes, you did. Shut up. In 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 late college, our friends started up a private server, and we pl- all played for like a week. Incredible. Uh, it was great. Uh, shout out to Colin. The the group I played video games with in high school had like a private server that was like in creative mode, and mm. they were like, "You should come in and like make some stuff." And I was like, I popped in once. I thought I'd like casually like mess around. I didn't really do Minecraft. And uh, the first thing I saw was an impossibly tall Hatsune Miku, um, <laughs> <laughs> and I was like very unprepared for the level of detail that had gone into it. And then I wow. turned around, and uh, most of the other things were the characters from My Little Pony because uh, my my friend Kyle had ironic become a brony and then unironically fully became a brony sure and so it was just hatsune miku and all of the my little pony characters all wow. impeccably done so i wow. was like i i can't i can't handle this and i had to leave that's wild i got really into making um minecart tracks big fan of minecart oh tracks. yeah it's a good time all right yeah, let's jump right in. Uh, also, before you go, Minecraft is how I know I'm old because I had to pay $4 for it with PayPal to b- download the beta version. That's when I started playing it. Nice. Uh, so there we go. I'm old. All right, let's get into it. I remember down- downloading oh. the uh, like the RPG mod stuff before yeah, that was yeah, like, part yeah. of the game. And like you had to enable God mode in order to like, and you had to put in the codes for every block you yeah. wanted. It was awful. Yeah. All right, Peter's going to tell us to go. Guys, people want to listen to the show. <laughs> the goal is to make something people want to listen to. You're so right. All right, let's get into it. That's the music. Chapter 17. After some musings on the nature of evil by Kruppa, our narrator, we find Murillo setting out on a mission of vengeance, followed by his new protege, Bellum Nam. Meanwhile, Snell's parents leave, seeking the blessing of the crippled god. Snell, the most evil little ten-year-old who ever was, contemplates selling his sisters for money to leave his family behind. Seba, or Seba, the new master of the Assassin's Guild, meets with Humble Measure, who creeps him the fuck out. The Guild is given a new contract to assault the estate of a council member to make space for Humble Measure on the council. Outside of the council chambers, the brash Hennet Orr gets into a verbal sparring match with Cole, who is clearly the superior duelist when it comes to words. Cole then speaks with Chalice's father about the expansion of the Malazan Embassy, 
which will probably become important later. The three dueling council members, Orr, Viticus, and Lim, argue with one another, clearly frustrated by their inability to affect their wills on the rest of the council. It ends with Orr calling Viticus a cuck. Brutal, but true. Seba Kefar is accosted in an alleyway on his trek back to the guild. He gets fucked up real good, and the contract on the Malazans is bought out. We see that the attacker is none other than Fisher Keltath, a serious badass. But no one is safe from the maddening musings of Iskarol Pusk, who seeks Fisher out and tells him that Shadowthrone devises he seek out the eel. We move back to Snell, who has knocked out his baby sisters because he's a fucking psychopath. Marilio enters and forces Snell to admit what happened to Harlow. He leaves to find the boy, while Bellum Nam shows up at the perfect time to watch Snell. He gives the boy a taste of his own medicine, scaring the living shit out of him. Gorlas finds Shallus as she returns from another tryst, and we get full confirmation that he's into it, saying that he wants to meet her lover, so that he can picture him while he thinks of his wife. No kink shaming here. I'm glad Gorlas is so comfortable with himself. Marilio finds the shepherd who sold Harlow, and he's a real piece of shit. Humans suck. He sets off after the boy, though the horse he has rented loses a shoe. This is an incredibly important detail for later. Snell runs from Bellum, but is quickly captured. He takes the boy to a shop that Snell believes belongs to a slaver, though it's actually Bellum's uncle who facilitates rower contracts. They throw Snell into a cell to let him suffer from his own imagination for the night. Barathal and Scalara realize they don't feel like finding anyone else, so they may as well just get together now. Super romantic. Until the city guard comes and arrests Char and Barathal for some stupid charge cooked up by the guild. Through Krupp, we peer into the mind of Char. He dislikes his situation and decides to get rid of it. Unfortunately, that involves absolutely murdering four or five city guards. At the iron mine, Gorlas continues to be a piece of shit. Landlords suck and we shouldn't have them. A cart approaches. Oh shit, Marilio's on the cart. And because he wore riding boots and then the horse couldn't go anymore because he threw that shoe, remember that from earlier? He had to walk. And now his feet have crazy bad blisters. What a silly thing, buddy. He attempts to buy Harlow's freedom from the foreman, but Gorlas recognizes Marilio. He throws a series of accusations at him and succeeds in getting Marilio to accidentally challenge Gorlas's honor. A duel must be fought, and Marilio can't keep his mouth shut, so then he also immediately calls Gorlas a cuck. Bad choice. Kroot and Ralik Nam have a conversation. It's fine. Barathal and Char attempt to escape, but they can't move quick enough. Barathal sends Char to the ship to find Lady Spite, and gets beaten to unconsciousness, buying time for his friend. Meanwhile, at the Phoenix Inn, Krupp continues to suck ass at being direct, and Cutter leaves, clearly missing a very important piece of information from Krupp. Bedek and Mirla are bad parents. In the crowd of the broken, they seek the prophet of the crippled god. The prophet turns his eyes to Mirla and blesses her with disease. 
Bedek falls from his cart and is crushed by the crowd, while Mirla slowly wastes away on top of him. Gorlas and Marilio duel. Gorlas refuses to allow Marilio to buy Harlow, and instead tells him the boy is marked and will wish Marilio never came for him. Marilio's blisters, as well as his old wounds, prove fatal. He moves too slowly, and Gorlas finally shows off why he's such a noted duelist. Though the two had agreed to first blood, Gorlas refuses and cuts Marilio down. He instructs the body be returned to the Phoenix Inn, and Harlow brought to him. All right. I'm going to start off with who who here feels the most prepared for a parenting question? <laughs> oh, no. Uh, Pete, there we go. All right, Peter, what level of of shittiness would your child need to be before you were like, I probably need to get you out of this household? Because I see a lot of like horror movies with bad kids where I'm like, you need to just put that kid somewhere else. And Snell is a great example of that. How far do you think a kid had to push you before you're like, nope, you're done? I would actually love to know the history of some of that because it is such a common trope in stories where it's like, you know what? You're such a piece of shit. We're sending you out of here, you know? Mm -hmm. And, you know, it was never threatened in my household. I'm very, very gracious (laughs) for that. um, So I would like to know about it. But, you know, they come to a tipping point with uh, little Snell here. And um, they kind of grill him. And I, I got to say, he does not hold up to the pressure. He, uh, you know, he really folds in. And then he has this whole storyline with Bellum all, all, all in it. And um, I feel like it, I feel like it's like the most we see a, we've seen of Bellum Nam the whole book, essentially. You mm-hmm. know? Yes. We, well, we, we only got introduced to him one or two chapters ago and exclusively just as a relative of Ralik Nam who shows some promise with dueling. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I did. I did like his inclusion. I liked his street smarts. Actually, and as he's a great I feel like Bellum Nam is a wonderful juxtaposition to people like Marilio. Because Marilio, like, definitely knows the noble people, you know, but he, 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 and he, he, you know, he's with the common folks. But Bellum Nam, like, really fucking gets the seediness of people. And I thought he was, like, a really, really great addition to this chapter. Mm. Well, he has those conversations about, like, you're a bully and, like, bullies are bullies because they don't think people are going to do shit to them. But, like, I'm going to do shit to you. And, like, yeah. actually, uh, like, fuck you. And he definitely serves a counterpoint of this question of, like, you know, like, yo, I'm like, let's fucking put an end to this shit, you know, um, which is interesting. There's different parts to that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But I do think it was it's such an, a, a, a weird, but interesting, good. I don't know what adjective I want to use, but the choice to have him not lay a finger on Snell and instead just let Snell make his own little mental prison. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I thought that was I thought that was really cool. That to me feels like a weird fucking technicality, though. I mean, it feels like it's like, oh, well, I technically didn't hurt him. It's like, yeah, OK, it's- <laughs> well, you intimidated and bullied him. So like it's it's very funny that the last chapter of this book is like is physical violence and economic violence the same thing and this yeah. in this chapter it's like physical violence and mental violence are different yeah he didn't technically hit <laughs> him one he, works. he tricked he tricked the child that's what he did it's okay you know that's yeah. true that's true aj it's very funny aj do you think as a future parent you're more likely to lock your kid in a cell and tell him he's going to get shipped off to slavery do you think that's kind of like going to be your whole speed 
Uh, well, uh, I'm, I have no intentions of being a parent, so um, okay. I'm going to no but that instead of yes and it. Okay. All right, follow up, follow up. Isn't that the same as when you put like a pet in a cage, you know? They don't know. They're convinced. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. Pet cages, a form of mental torture. You've heard it here first. No yeah. cages for your yeah. pets. No um, cages, no pets. They also call the kids that are doing the mining moles in this, which I thought was a, yeah. just very, that's great. That's great. They've, been, no, they, they've done that all book, though, Pete. Yeah, yeah. I, I just missed it, I guess. I don't know. I was. Uh, okay, we'll get to that. Don't worry. All right, we're going to leave Snell. I don't know if we'll come back to that storyline much. Uh, we're. I, I'm going to be pushing through people because there are, writing the chapter 17 summer yesterday, there are so many plot threads. Yeah, we so hop around a lot. I'm sorry if I skip one. And by sorry, I mean don't care. Get over it. All right. Seba, <laughs> the new master of the Assassin's Guild meets with our good boy, Humble Measure. Mm-hmm. Um, AJ, how mm. do you feel about the name Humble Measure? I like the name Humble Measure. I don't really think it means anything, but I do like it. <laughs> I, I'm with you there. I feel like it's almost meant to be a something. Right. But like, but then when you but when you try to like grasp it, it just leaves you, you know? It's like sand. Like the harder you, the harder you try and grasp it to understand it, the more it just like flows out of your hand. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So we but we see the two of them and we see that uh Siba is given a, a, a new contract to take out a council member. And AJ, I mean I we know a lot of council members. Yes. Who's your who's your bet? Who's your bet of who this contract is on? My I, I didn't really know. I wasn't really sure. And then the next section we talk about coal and I was like, oh, well, maybe it's, it has to be coal. But it right? felt like, too on the nose to do mm, that because I, I, my first thought was coal. And then we went to him and I was like, mm, I don't know. Yeah, I, 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 I don't know any other council members by name, honestly. I don't either. But there was one hint we got, which was the terrier that chases the rats. And I'm trying to think of if mm. we know a council member with a dog. I thought about Lady Envy, perhaps brand new mm. council member just gotten on. But I was like, I don't I don't think they have a dog that like chases the rats necessarily no but that could be you know fake flowery language it could be yeah you know i don't know i do like um this is i mean for me this was when i was like oh humble measures the person that is or no sorry gorlas is trying to get himself on the council right gorlas is on the council he's working he is helping so humble measure is like giving him all this stuff because he is supposed to be that like basically when a seat opens up and humble measure makes his push gorlas is going to be the one that like seconds it and gets his cronies to to kind of help legitimize it okay so so my 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 thought was correct i just second guessed myself okay uh, i thought that was interesting to get confirmation that like oh this is the this is the plot this is the council member or the person that they're trying to get on mm-hmm. the council it's like oh I, I get it now i get it and then uh there is some there's some in classic steve fashion there are some hints being dropped of potentially something that will come up later regarding the malazans <laughs> because you know while steve was talking with humble measure he's like put the malazans on the back burner focus on this next scene we've got cole and hannah Orr talking about the Malazan embassy asking to expand and having some flimsy reason for it. And they get into a whole spat. But Peter, I want to know. I haven't thought of a question yet. Hold on. Well, Josh, let me tell you this about this council scene. Not I I found this whole seeing the counselors talk stuff fun. You know, I feel like 
I enjoy seeing them actually doing some politicking. I think these books actually don't really have much politicking in them usually in this type of sense where you're actually seeing these counselors acting and like trying to, you know, ooh, mm-hmm. trick each other, bluff each other, whatever, whatever. So I think it's fun to see them actually in this environment and then the conversation where they're trying to confront uh, Cole is fun. So, uh, you know, it's nice to see them and they're all kind of... Uh, I imagine them as much younger this time, you know, especially in contrast to some of the older counselor members. I mean, I think it stood out that obviously these people are ambitious, but they're ambitious and they're young in in a way that kind of rung out to me. So, Mm. yeah, I definitely always assumed that the the trio of new counselors was like in their 20s, you know, I mean, maybe 30s, but this is medieval times. So young has got to be 20s like they, you know, I'm Cole's probably only 44 or whatever in the, in the yeah. context of stuff. <laughs> See, I think what's tough is that, oh, I often imagine Gorlas as like a very, uh, like a weird old dude. Um, oh, no, dude. He's so young. Oh, really? so young. Not old, but like I imagine him as maybe middle-aged in a very unhappy sort of way, you know? Mm. Hmm. I could get that, but I do think factually he's like 27. No, he's definitely young. He's definitely young on yeah. the facts. Okay, I gotcha. I, I, speaking of the politicking, though, I really enjoyed Cole and uh, Chalice's father. Uh, sorry, Atrezian de Arles. Uh, Thank you. <laughs> I could tell Ooh. he was going to be upset. Uh, <laughs> I really enjoyed them being like, God, these fucking idiots. We put them on the dumbest subcommittees and they just still fuck things up. It's pretty impressive. Mm-hmm. I, do yeah. ho- mm-hmm. I do, however, like that they're, they're not so dumb as to think that they'll be idiots forever like they 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 say like when they get it together they will be a dangerous trio cole's final line here is one day they will indeed be as dangerous as they think they are which i thought was it's really good chef's kiss well and you know they've got this whole we we, they're introduced as counselor duelists first then counselors and we and we see later how that plays out for gorlas and uh i do wonder if it will be their downfall because you know if you try and pull some you know word trickery in front of the wrong people in an attempt to like kill another counselor feels like a real easy way to be like hey uh fucking stop this we'll settle this in a court of law you big dumb idiot um i'm curious if we'll see something like that so then uh we do see that we do see the 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 boys as i'm gonna call them of or viticus and limb argue with each other and it does end with or calling viticus a cuck uh which is like really brutal and confusingly gorlas is like oh is this a known thing and i was really confused because it felt you know we had had chalice's pov before where she was convinced he already knew so it was interesting to kind of see confirmation that like he didn't he just kind of was you know had no idea yeah so we move on to uh siba kafar the leader of the assassins and he gets put up against a wall in the most uncool way for him absolutely just outpowered <laughs> like crazy um india if you were the leader of an assassin's guild what's your first play after being literally mugged in an alleyway do you are you going for revenge are you retreating tail between your legs where are you where are you feeling um as an assassin i think i'm definitely uh going for revenge these assassins are like supposed to be so brutal, but like they keep embarrassing themselves every time we're supposed to see them be assassinating people. Yeah. 
Actually, that's a great point because uh, like a scene or two ago when Sibo was talking with uh, Humble Measure, he even brings up the fact that they lost almost every experienced yeah. member in the attack on the Malazans. <laughs> yeah. So the Malazans were like, these assassins aren't great, Oof. but that was the cream of the crop that was left. And now it's a bunch of just idiots. So blah, 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 blah. We are back with Snell. He has, of course, knocked out his baby sisters, which is absolutely crazy. <laughs> Would you say... Actually, I, I'm going to go for Peter for this. I would say this act right here, the act of knocking out his sister with the with sisters with the intention of selling them. I think Mark Snell as a truly evil character. And we, we actually have musings on the nature of evil at the very beginning of this. Krupp really goes mm-hmm. into it. But I've, I would say, you know, there's a lot of ambitions in these books that lead people to do bad things. But I would say Snell is one of the most irredeemable characters. Peter, would you categorize Snell as evil or do you think there's a hope for him? I would not categorize him as evil, as I think you would expect me to say. But I think it does really demonstrate uh, kids can be very cruel, which is a very well-known thing. So it's, you know, I think it's apt with the pining of how great children are and um, how cool Harlow is and his boyish spirit and blah, blah, blah to also have some sort of acknowledgement of, you know, the darker side, you know? And you do touch on this uh, passage about evil, which is funny. I believe we've even talked about evil on the show before. So, yeah, feels pretty bad, I would say. Feels pretty bad, the selling of the the, the sisters. Yeah, I think it's, uh, it really, Josh, I think you're right. It really solidifies Snell as just, like, a shitty character, uh, or a shitty person, rather. Because, like... Even the stuff he did with Harlow was like, oh, that could just be a kid lashing out or whatever. But to see the POV here of like, oh, I could sell my sisters into slavery. That would be fun. Yeah. And cool. And like, it's like, oh, exactly. It's that ending part. It's not just the thought of I would do this to escape. He he relishes like that fate Mm. for them. Like, mm-hmm. re- uh, it's, it's really brutal. Yeah, it's it's very it's very wild. But I do think this is also like in an effort to get us to really hate Snell so that when he gets his comeuppance later, we can like pump a fist or something. Yeah, I guess so. I can't wait for this 10 year. I can't wait for this 10 year old to get fucking murdered. <laughs> yeah, I, this these books do this a lot with characters that we're supposed to not like that are obviously bad. There's always one event right before they get their like big comeuppance moment where they're like, this is the shittiest thing they could do. Yes. So now you can't feel bad for them. Yeah. Quote unquote can't. But, you know, mm-hmm. this is that moment. Yeah. It's a pretty shitty time. <laughs> but we go from there to a very tense scene between Chalice and Gorlis. I, my reading of this, and I don't know if I'm wrong, but my mm. reading of this scene is that Gorlas tells Chalice he wants to meet her lover so he can better picture it. Mm-hmm. And... I can't tell because Chalice is convinced that he is going to just like be sort of thinking about this the whole weekend. And it felt like in a sexual way, like while he's going to this mining camp. And and I can't tell if that's like the correct reading. And I don't know with Gorlas if he's going to come back and immediately lash out at Cutter, who I imagine would murder the shit out of him, which I would Mm. love to see. Uh, I don't know. Was that your reading of it, Peter AJ? Um... I didn't read it as like a tell me who you're fucking so that I can see it better. Quote like I didn't I didn't read it as like a horny thing, but this isn't the first time that you have read something about Gorlis as horny that I did that I totally did mm-hmm. not clock. So maybe, but it didn't it didn't strike me that way in the moment. To me, it was like 
you know, do it so I can better picture it just so I can like see the man like, I don't know. I think he just wants to, to, to know. I, did, I didn't think of it as like a he wants it to be a horny thing for him. Gotcha. I just thought he wanted to be able to like, because with Hanador and Sheridan Lim, whatever, like he knows those guys. And so like if it happened with them, he's like, OK, I can I see it, you know. Um, but I guess he wants he wants a measure of Cutter to like see like, is this guy buffer than me? Yeah. You know, what's what's the dick like? So, you know? oh, so Gorlas has to approve the bulls is what you're saying. Yeah, it's not it's not a like, ooh, I love my my wife being banged. It's like, I just got to make sure that it's the right person for her. Yeah, this book's wild. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know how to read it, honestly. Yeah. We go from there to Marilio. Actually, I'm saving the Marilio thing. That's what I'm going to talk about last. I'm going to go through his whole. Yeah, techni- technically, we're already in the house. I'm, I'm going to go through the whole Marilio thing at the end of this chapter. So we go through mm-hmm. there. Snell gets, you know, a little bit of a comeuppance. Uh, India, we get over to Barathal and Solara. What's your take on the relationship between Barathal and Solara? Is it is it like a desperation? Is it like a, oh, you know, how have I missed this in front of me the whole time? How are you feeling about it? Um, I think that it is, <clears throat> I think we all kind of saw it coming when they first met and she kind of replaced her, what is his name, Cutter with Barathal. Yeah. I ship them they vibe is it like a desperation thing i don't know i don't think so i couldn't at first i thought they were dancing at like uh you know if we're both single at 30 we'll get married kind of deal but but it felt (laughs) a little more real towards the end for sure yeah those thoughts are exactly mine josh the like oh well you know we'll have like this marriage pact or whatever but then yeah at the end they were like oh no we actually we like each other yeah interesting i I did like the whole conversation of like you know i don't want to be another man left in your wake and then she talks to him about like you've devoted your life to making weapons and armor problem is you're only doing that for everyone else mm-hmm. good line that was that's a good line yeah they're both so much better at wordplay than scalara and cutter were i love it for them yeah. i love it for them it's because cutter has no word cutter can't cannot wordplay yeah. cutter's wordplay is like i'm like a sword <laughs> yes and that is point that has a point i Didn't hate sand <laughs> <laughs> very good um listen i know you're talking about characters and their relationships but i want to really bring in something much more important which is pedantry so the the like (laughs) guild member that shows up um, you're you're gonna cut into what i was gonna ask you but keep going the guild member shows up and they're like they're they, they get arrested and that's blah 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 i don't care so the guild member's there and she says this line where she's, they're talking about shower, and she's like, "Oh, she, he, her apprentice." Like, "Oh, he's not my apprentice." And he, she's like, "He's like a, he's a simpleton." I forget what exactly they call him. Mm-hmm. Um, and she's like, "Oh, nothing more than a slave." It seems as if you've broken an even worse rule than sewer disposal. I know. Mm-hmm. Which brings me to what we talked about with the Harlow thing when you guys were like, "Well, he's a slave," and I was like, "Yeah, I don't know if he's technically a slave." And then we got on this, you know, of course, blah blah blah. So what is going on in Darujistan? That because at the same time we meet the people selling the kids later in this chapter they're just out there selling the kids well yeah but 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 pete it depends on if it's for like the better the betterment of the society or whatever whatever the the people in power decide is slavery is slavery and whatever i do agree though peter that is a huge double swell now pete let me well listen and that's that's what i mean i think if you follow aj there's a whole thing and then there's a whole point which touched on stuff goes into fifth five which is when you're talking about material conditions around work and blah 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 but it's like 
I'm just caught up on this pedantry of me being on this weird yep. thing of like, well, slavery technically is illegal here, you know, but it seems like that means nothing. And that basically also slavery is just fully practiced by all these people, you know, so. Do you, and now do you think mm-hmm. it ha- maybe it has something to do with the fact that the iron mines are outside of the city? That doesn't feel good either because it's run by citizens who should be following the laws of their city. Yes. Well, I mean, of course, it's not going to feel good. We're talking about slavery, but I do hear you. I think it would feel doubly bad if Darugistan was like, well, technically, they're not in the city. Um, right, 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 right. I would say I would probably say that's the justification. Honestly, it's it's all like the the. I don't know, uh, boiling it down to its simplest parts, but like whatever the people in power decide is slavery is slavery and whatever they're OK with is fine. Yeah. You know, if it's for the good of the city, then slavery's fine. But if there's right. one guy who like has a guy who he's not technically paying, then that's bad. Right. Yeah, that's something I want to move forward because time I'm going to get I'm going to break down the last three major things here. Number one, how did you all feel on on Mr. Erickson's uh, <laughs> t- attempt at writing from the point of view of a mentally disabled person? Mm. Because while I thought it was interesting and maybe well done, I was still, when I finished it, like, I don't know if I wanted that or really, like, felt it was necessary. Yeah. And I wonder how you guys felt. Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think this was like, it. okay, here, here's, here's my thought. It felt like it was being used as a device to show us a, a, a wild thing that was about to happen because this is from Krupp's POV technically so this is Krupp yes. narrating Chower's thoughts which is now like we're two levels deep or whatever yeah post postmodern <laughs> but uh yeah I, I I remember thinking of like I, I I wasn't too clued in and I didn't read through it a second time or whatever and I was like is this infantilizing at all or is this you know, whatever, but I didn't go back and read it a second time, which I probably should have if I was even having that thought. But I don't know. It didn't it didn't sh- strike me in in, in a, a particularly negative or positive way, honestly. Yeah, I mean, I, I found it didn't leave a huge impression on me. I mean, I understand where you're coming from, Josh. I think I would feel different if it seemed to me like it was a bigger part of the story. I feel like it was very small. And also it was mostly metaphorical. I feel it was very like about the idea of things changing and objects and blah, blah, blah. But also, that's not my experience. So if people want to write in, I'd be I'd be kinched if people had something to say about it. So, yeah, yeah, agreed. Yeah. Skimming through it right now, it seems like it's kind of even even though he's like, let's take a momentary view into Chower's mind. It's like it's kind of just an outside view of like what Krupp observes to be Chower's mind. So it's not like. It doesn't That's true. Like we're super because he's just like, oh, he's you know, his mind is full of love and it's powerful. And uh, but also it can be overtaken by hate and blah, blah, blah. You know, it's all just kind of very outside kind of objective and less of like like Chower's actual thoughts. Yeah, makes sense. That's one of three final things. Second final thing is, uh, oh, and then Char, of course, escapes at the cost of Barathol getting caught and very much worry for him because, you know, before it was just some fucking, you know, financial stuff to work out but now he's probably wanted for murder so someone's gonna have to break him out probably then we get brought to what i would say is a depressingly accurate viewpoint from bedek and mirla of we we see a lot of the crippled god followers i don't think we've seen from their point of view necessarily since maybe the bone hunters with the the whole kingdom being led by young what's her name but we see oh, Bedekin, yeah. I can't remember her name Fallison right now. Younger. Fallison Younger, thank you. 
we see this point of view from Bedek and Merla, and they are, I mean, it's just tragic. Mm. Peter, who do you think is going to make the best parent Snell for these two young girls and potentially Harlow? And I hope not Snell, but who do you think is the best parent figure we've met in this book so far to take up the mantle? I think there are some good parent figures around. Um, but I agree with you, Josh. We have not really seen uh, the kind of the followers of the crippled God in this sense. And it's interesting to see another half because I would say the, the followers could portray different ways. And that's what I'll say about the subject. Do you uh, do you think there's a big correlation between these people and the followers of the Redeemer who very similarly just kind of gave nothing but asked everything from their God? It's an interesting parallel you're drawing. Um, I think both people are, I'm chewing on it and I'll get back to you when I have a better thought. Come back to me. Come back to me. All right. And that brings us to the, the what I would say is the real meat of this chapter, which is the Murillo <laughs> saga. So Murillo. Yeah, I would definitely say, I mean, it's, it's in the, epi, it's in the prologue. What's the what fucking word? It's in the epigraph. It's in like, it's, I would say it's definitely the whole thrust of the book, you know? Yeah. The, this chapter. Yeah, that. So, um, so we're getting to the meet now with Marilio. So he follows the trail, finds the shepherd that sold Harlow. Again, to me, an irredeemable act, personally. Uh, but Marilio is a better man than I am, and he <laughs> leaves that shepherd alive. And then we get into what I what I call is how many bad decisions can a character make before it becomes unbelievable somewhat. Because Marilio, Marilio rents a bad horse. Because he's renting a horse, he's wearing his old bad riding shoes. The horse, because it's old and bad, throws a shoe. And Marilio, and, and by the way, throws a shoe very close to town. He's still quite close to town because it specifically states it's like 30 seconds after he leaves the shepherd mm-hmm. that it throws the shoe. And the shepherd is close enough that Harlow walked there in a morning. So it is not unreasonable that he could go back and get another horse right now. But instead, he chooses to walk what is presumably probably five or six miles in ill-fitting riding shoes, causing him to get crazy bad blisters, which then leads to his, well, partially leads to his demise uh, against Gorlas. I mean, and he almost has it, too. (laughs) He really does. And it's just he's he's just a little slower. You know, his mind's a little fogged by the pain. AJ, did you find did you find this series of events tragic entirely? I found them tragic, but also it felt like such a easily avoidable situation for him. Definitely easily uh, avoidable. And also I didn't clock that like he just kept doing like stupid little shit until the the shoes thing which i think is the beginning of the section where he uh where at the end he gets he gets murdered uh so i i I didn't really clock it but um i think thinking back on it for me was more impactful than like realizing it in the moment you Mm -hmm. know um because it was like ah he's like so close or whatever and then and as you're at least listing off all these little things that were going wrong it's like oh he like if this was like a regular or you know if everything was like regular then he could have probably done it um which i just think is 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 tragic to me mm-hmm. and uh, and you know there is also something to be said about his injury from the the beginning of the book still holding him back i mean he really shouldn't be fighting at yeah all. yeah it's really it is a, it is definitely a, a, a legit series of unfortunate events that lead to this it peter is, yeah i'll just uh, i will say um Josh, at what point did you feel like you knew this whole thing was going bad? As soon as, 
uh, two parts. One, when Gorlas was there, and two, when he mentioned blisters. Because there are there are things that you do not mention as Steve Erickson unless they are going to imminently come up. Yeah. In this and that blisters is one of them. And I think the thing is, I think Steve, you know, I, I think this sequence is one of those where you're like, man, you know, he when you know, when he's not doing all this stuff or doing whatever, he can just settle down and write a really good whole sequence, you know? And it, um, well, and it's because I'm shitting on Marilio for these bad, dumb things. But I fully at the same time understand because in his mind, every second is precious in this attempt to save Harlow from this right. fate that he doesn't, you know, he, he he's filling in his mind with all sorts of terrible things that could be happening. So he does right. have to get there as soon as possible. And that's yeah. what I mean. I feel like the whole chapter set up from moment one is this really slow play and all of these things build up, build up. And there really is this sense of dread. And when he dies, you know, it's not shocking or surprising. I guess maybe a little bit. You're always like, wow, they really went through with it. But I also feel like the whole chapter is set up in this way to make it feel kind of inevitable in a very sad sense. And it's very torturous of Steve because it's a very it's a big chapter. There are so many threads, but he Mm. makes sure to sprinkle this one through frequently enough that it's always on your mind yeah yeah but that brings us to the end of the chapter marilio is assumedly dead but it is also malazan and you know who knows maybe nah, he he's dead. totally dead he's uh, no, he's definitely dead i mean he could come back i'm saying but like mm. they haven't brought back someone back in, in they haven't brought someone back as unrelevant unnecessary for the overarching plot as marilio is mm. so i don't think he's coming back in any real way which makes me very sad because he gave it his all mm-hmm. and i really hope that gorlis viticus comes back challenges cutter and cutter uh just avenges marilio really hope that happens yeah um before we move on to the next chapter uh i just really quick want to give a shout out to all of our patrons who have backed our patreon in the last few weeks uh if you want to back our patreon you can head on over to patreon.com slash 10 very big books but for now i want to give a huge 10 very big books thank you uh to sebastian dylan fox Grouchbox, Jacob, and Matthew. Thank you all so much for backing us on Patreon. Uh, We finally released that Star Trek episode. Uh, So uh, if you just pay $1, you get access to all of our bonus episodes and stuff like that. Uh, There's also a couple other tiers, but look, we appreciate anything and everything you can give. uh, And that's all I'll say about that. Thanks so much. Let's move on to the next chapter now. Chapter 18 The Hounds of Shadow and Light don't get along. They meet with Shadowthrone and Cotillion before Tula Shorn finds them. He beckons to his hounds, but they do not approach. When the Hounds of Light show up, Tulas loses his fucking mind and says a lot of ominous stuff. He flees, leaving Cotillion questioning whether Shadowthrone really knows what he's doing. Kalor walks and is sad. Good. Fuck him. The young Tisty Andy group continues to bicker. Gosh, I wish they could just be less sad and mad. They need a little vacay. 
a literal bear god sneaks up on Samardev and company, after she dismisses it by naming the god in the Imas tongue. The three talk about gods of war, and the nature of Karsa's goals for the world. In Dragnapur, Pearl, side note, the demon, not the claw, pretty confusing, Steve, speaks with Draconis, and they talk of welcoming the end. Behind them, chaos begins taking form, which is literally like the antithesis of chaos. Pretty ominous. Ditch dreams while Kataspala finishes his tattoos. Seems like he's making a god, which is pretty wild. Will Ditch be the god? We'll find out. Eventually. Sirdaman and the Redeemer speak, albeit cryptically. Sirdaman says he will likely stand and fight Selind again when she attacks. Munkrat has a little scene, which is stupid. He's actually a bridge burner. Who cares? His name's Munkrat. And unless he turns out to be like a legend we've heard about a bunch, I couldn't care less. Rake meets with the High Priestess. And it's very sad. It feels like Anamander is preparing to leave. One final time. We jump to the antics of Gruntle and Co, and it's fucking awesome. Three zombie women attack the bar they're in, hurting Mappo a bunch. When they break in, Gruntle beheads two, while Rakanto Ilk accidentally kills the third. He also pisses himself, which is talked about far too much. Long story short, the group learns that the jagged provost of the town has cursed it because he's a petty little bitch. They talk with him, and he casually admits that he did it after a woman in town refused his advances. He also admits to burying his wife on a cliff, which then fell into the sea. We learn that the villagers are records, which makes them all pretty shitty people, and allows us to feel no moral qualms about their fates either. The Jagged's wife returns from the sea. She's also a Jagged, and super pissed. She tells the group to leave town before she destroys it, in the process of killing her husband. This should end the curse, but they should leave town just to be sure. Throughout all of this is a running gag that the three young female members of the group might turn into zombies too, unless they get pregnant. And literally every time a man talks after this reveal, they yell at them for being perverts. Honestly, Steve, 10 out of 10. Kedavis goes to Clip, and in the dumbest fucking move in a while, admits that she knows the Dying God is inside him, and that the group will betray him. So he fucking murders her, because what else could happen after that? Arantha wakes up Namander, and tells him what happened. There's some stuff about how Namander is going to erupt one day, and probably kill Clip. Maybe he'll take Anamander's place? Speaking of whom, Anamander Rake heads into the woods, leaving Endist Salon behind. And it feels like this is the end of our boy, Anamander.
All right, so chapter 18 starts off uh, with what I was really waiting for, which is this scene between Tulas and Shadow Throne. Um, but I want to go to India first. India, how many random stray dogs would you adopt before you start questioning why they keep showing up? Because Shadow Throne has proven it's a lot. I think I'd have to draw the line at one. Only one stray dog. <laughs> But Shadow Thrones have more like, you know, if if my dogs could, in theory, tear people apart, I'd probably have more. Mm. That's fair. I think you could talk me into three. <laughs> but that's my that's my hard limit. Yeah, I think I think three is where I draw the line as well. Yeah. Pete, how many random stray dogs would you take in? The thing is, there's shelters. So I think maybe I would work with a shelter and kind of collaborate, if you will. Yeah, you heard it here. You Cowardly. heard it here first, folks. <laughs> okay, okay, <laughs> fuck you guys. <laughs> so I I love Tulas because mm. so far he has exclusively shown up, been incredibly dramatic, <laughs> and then said stuff that has fucked up people who so far have been infallible. And uh, I want to know everyone else's opinion on our boy Tulas, Shorn. Pete, you first. Fan or not fan? No, got it. Sorry. Are you Shorny, baby? Whoa. <laughs> not a fan. I have no not not a, not one of my guys. Gosh. Pete, what's what's is there a Japanese cultural thing you do after someone sneezes? No. <laughs> Fascinating. A fascinating cultural exchange only here on the 10 very big books podcast. <laughs> I'm exactly. not leaving any of those sneezes in. Are you kidding me? <laughs> what? No. All oh, right, fine. I'll leave a sneeze in. <laughs> I'll leave a sneeze in. Um, okay, uh, AJ, are you are you Shorny or not Shorny? I I I I I I, I think I'm Shorny. Yeah, baby, yeah. Just because you know I love you know a million year old person who shows up and says a thing and everybody's like what? <laughs> exactly. Um, exactly. I'm a I'm a big fan of that. You know, Charles Sangar. Shout out to my boy. Rest in peace. You know, still one of my favorite characters. Midnight Tide, still one of my favorite books for those exact reasons. So you did. You were so into trolls so early. Yeah. So, yes, I am. I am Shorny, baby. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Do I, like, In, I need to make an Austin Powers fucking stinger yeah. for that? <laughs> so just that. Just the opening of that. Oh uh, India, any thoughts on Shorn? I'm kind of cold on him. So That's I fair. I would Ooh, say across ahead. the board, this this all tracks, really. Yeah, <laughs> honestly. AJ and Josh love uh, weird old people yeah. saying ominous stuff and Pete and India not as big. Yeah, on it. that's fine. Yeah, I can't wait to figure out why he's so fucking afraid of. I mean, they say some stuff in here. Steve's always saying, by the way, Steve has said since book one that book eight is the cipher for the series. Yes. And I really feel like there's so much light, dark shadow talk in this book series, in this mm. in this book, mm. that that has to be part of this cipher. And I, I, I'm, guys, I got nothing. I have no I mean, idea what it all means. This is we, we, we get another moment where we're talking about the hounds and we bring up the hounds of light and stuff um, to which Shadow Thrones like they're just albino hounds of darkness, yeah. whatever. The book is called Toll the Hounds. I, so, they, so they've got to be so important. So there right? has to be something. And jo yeah, Josh, I think you're absolutely right. I think there, there's got to be something we're getting. You know, this book is so eater or Andy centric mm -hmm. 
in a lot of ways, not even just the the Andy kids going around, but like all the end of salon stuff, even all the ditch stuff. Exactly. There's all this stuff on shadow can't exist without light. Yeah. But and but what is dark if there is no light to juxtapose it? Yeah. And what is the difference between dark and shadow? There's I mean, there's so So many things. So and it's it's all going to mean a thing later, Mm -hmm. but we don't need to worry about it now. Mm -hmm. I'm going to skip past some classic sad people (laughs) um, and we're going to get to Sam, our dev. And company, uh, and a, a bear god walks up. So wasn't expecting that. Um, yeah. Peter. Yes. I don't know if I. I don't know if I have a good question. Hold on, let me think. Yeah, we got nothing. I I, I have something. Did you? Did okay, you? Okay, thank we, you. Did we think? Did we think that Samar being announced as a, a high priestess of Burn would mean that she's just going to get visits, <laughs> some casual visits from every god now? Like, what do we? So I knew. I mean, I felt that it meant that immediately things would get different. And you know, actually, I want to bring that. I want to pause real quick, AJ, because you mm. just made me. Th- you did just made me think of something. Samar Dev up until now has really, I think, been explicitly in environments that hampered her. I think Hmm. since the very introduction of her, this is one of the first times that we've seen her in a place where she can draw on her full power. I believe when we meet her, she sort of can. But then when she travels with Karsa, that land is dead mostly. Mm -hmm. And then when she's over with the Tisti Eater land, obviously the whole uh, Hood's realm being closed thing prevents her from interacting with pretty much any spirits. So it's very interesting. She's finally in a place again where she can fully like draw upon stuff around her. So I do wonder if that's helping, if that's making her a bit of a conduit. Now that interesting. She can do that. Interesting. Yeah. I did just want to cut in here. I was, you know, during this whole conversation with Samar and stuff, you know, they do the whole progress. What's progress? You know, progress according to who thing, you know? Yeah. Um, I don't even read that stuff anymore. It just it blurs. <laughs> it blurs over my eyes every time now. And it reminded me of an email our listener Jonas sent in. And uh, thank you for the email, Jonas. It was from a while back. I responded a bit. That was a kind email. And I didn't bring it up on the show, although I was curious about it because I did feel uh, I, I just didn't know how to bring it up. But here's here was his question to me. How can we imagine that a world that has human civilization for at least 119,000 years, approximate time from Death and Backless in the First Empire, has not developed technology beyond horses, swords, and wood fires? I mean, the access <laughs> to magic isn't so widespread that it totally replaced technological development. Does Steve have an answer to this? And then he goes on about our world and stuff. So, and then how it relates to Sam Ardev. So I'm not looking to answer that. I just it made me think of this email and how it did it throw it throw a classic like Internet, you know, oh, well, what about this point into the whole thing? You know, hmm. it, it reminded hmm. me of our listener. Thank you for the email. That's really interesting. Yeah, I hadn't thought about that. Yeah, they are quite. I mean, I guess that just goes to prove that Earth humans are fucking better. Yes, <laughs> we just do it right here, baby. They're smarter and cooler. Uh, As you can tell, all signs, everything on Earth going good. Well, I oh, mean, yeah. we have uh, not to totally derail it, but like the Kachin Shamal sky keeps and stuff were That's like true. borderline the closest we got to technology. That's um, true. And I think that was created by virtue of them being dinosaurs and like needing to, you know, wanting to, to be able to cross do the you oceans think, and stuff do you think it has something to do peter with maybe the fact that there are like real gods in this i you know i really don't want to get into answering it because i don't personally don't care and then number two <laughs> um i, I 
Well, it's just this isn't the type of stuff I've invested in. To me, the answer is, oh, it's like a mad. It's magic. I don't know. Magic. Yeah. It's, it's okay. like I, I, this is the type of stuff I wave my hand and I move on to reading sure. the story. You know. Sure. Yep. All yeah. right, that's fair. We'll we'll move from there. But yeah. uh, you know, it was an interesting question. I responded. I was like, I don't really know. I didn't, yeah. I hadn't thought about it. You know. Yeah. It's pretty uh, great. I do like this thought uh, that the god of war is just whatever <laughs> whatever predator is most savage uh, is takes the form of the god of war. Fenir, Tog, Vandere, Treach, uh, and Denako Crawl, and then maybe however many before that. Well, that makes that makes a hundred. Pr- well, first off, it's the ho- it's the hold of beasts, you know. Yeah. So it seems like since time immemorial, whatever big fucking animal scared you became a god. So yeah. it makes total sense. Yeah, you know. Yeah. Anyway, we move into Dragnipur, which I would say is some of the headiest stuff we deal with in this book because mm. who knows where it's leading. And and we get to a, a very pivotal scene. It does start off with Pearl, who for a moment I thought was the human Pearl, and I was like. What? But it wasn't. Um, and India, my question to you is when you were introduced to a random demon on a rooftop summoned by Kalam all the way back in book one and he named it Pearl and then he died. Did you think he would come back at the end of the book series uh... inside of an interdimensional hellhole that saves chaos? No. Josh, I can't, I can't believe you remember that. Yeah, I would have never known that. There's two, there's two pearls. Pearl number one is summoned by Kalam and he's very sad. Because I don't know if you remember, AJ, book one's confusing as all fucking hell, and the reveal that they could just summon Imperial Demons was obnoxious. So I remember it just really stuck out for me. Sure. Oh, you didn't read book one with us, though. So yeah, that's right. Fair. I read book one after book five. Yeah, uh, so that's, that's fair. Yeah. Uh, so um, I, had, I already had another pearl living in my heart at that point. You know. That's true. That's true. Pete, do you feel it's necessary that we have this other PO? Well, I guess we need this conversation with Draconis. It just feels like we're really trying to give any kind of connection to Dra- to Dragnipur at this point. I want to talk about this whole stuff's crazy. Um, mm-hmm. And they're always just they're always just saying such metaphors and stuff. Everything is always like, well, maybe the chaos is us and I'm the chaos and... <laughs> You know, have we considered? Yeah. And part of me is like, what's going like? Uh, I, I'm like, sh- everyone all the time is contemplating whether the thing is a metaphor or not, you know? Um, mm-hmm. But something I did love, you know, Steve took some chances and he's done some stuff. You can't say he did not leave it all out on the field. And here's what I mean. So they're doing this passage. He's He's writing this passage about... Uh, the tattoos, I think, and about words yeah. and what words and and mean for worship. It's and, fucking crazy. And then just all of a sudden, he just is, he just goes for it. You know, half court shot behind the head, you know, doing the twi- triple spin. And you're just like, whoa, what's wait a second. What's happening? And, you know, so disorienting. I I personally like it. I'm sure people some people don't like it. But it, I also just some part of me is just thrilled by the audacity to just be going buck wild do you know what i mean mm-hmm. yeah it's I, I would say this yeah I, I already said this is some heady stuff but th- like this dude making a god and and all these dreams ditches having I, it's yeah. awesome it, it's it's really cool how uh gun to head though i don't know what any of it means so uh, mm. we'll find out Hmm. Interesting. And of course, you know, the the uh, we, we see chaos take form, which I, I wrote and I'm very proud of this statement. I wrote it in the summary uh, is that that's the antithesis of chaos is that there should not like it should not be taking form. So I am very hmm. curious about what is happening there. So 
We will find out. Unless those are all the armies of the dead and the dead are chasing them, not chaos. Who knows? That'd be wild, right? Uh, anyway, I don't know. Who's to say? So moving on, the, the Seer Demon and the Redeemer talk. And then Monkrack has a scene and it's revealed he's a Malazan bridge burner. Who cares? <laughs> that right kinda, at this point. I, yeah, I was like, holy shit. But also, well, I don't know what this means. <laughs> we're, the problem is like we're out of cool Malazans. We're out of time for cool bridge burners, in my opinion. Mm. Like you were he was he was stretching it thin trying to make me care about these five bridge burners in this book that I've not seen in five whole books. Sure. So to then be like, maybe Monkrack has a face turn, you know, fuck that. I'm not dealing with it. Yeah. Uh, unless he's someone that we've been told. I don't think there's any names that we've been told were lost in um the Motwood that are like, you know, will ring a bell or anything. So he can't be anyone like crazy. Yeah, I, I don't know how much info we have on like the specifics of the Motwood stuff. Yeah, I'm going to skip the Andy East. I'm going to skip the Rake stuff. And uh, I'm actually going to jump down all the way to the uh, Kedavis and Clip scene. Mm -hmm. And my question to you, India, is are you final girl material like <laughs> our girl? Uh, what's her name? Arantha, or are you dying a third of the way into the movie like fucking Cadavis going and confronting the villain? It really depends on if I am a supporting black character or not. <laughs> That's fair. If I am, I'm dying first. If I'm not, I think I can make it to the end. <laughs> I think you've got enough spunk to be final girl material personally. <laughs> yeah, no, I'll, I'll give you that. I, I, I'm sorry to say, I, I just don't know if I don't know if any of us are final girl material, you know? Oh, I'm the funny friend that dies uh, trying to have one heroic moment, for sure. Yeah. I think I'm the panicked one that runs away on my own for some reason. Mm. I don't think I get cast in the movie. I don't feel like I have that. I don't feel like I have the energy to <laughs> you don't bring. Have the star power. I don't you're the think old, I have you're the, the old, You're the old man that warns them as they go to the summer camp. Don't um, stay out after sunset and no bonfires. Yeah. Listen, if my experience in musical theater has taught me anything, I think I'd get cast as like the one guy in high school they see in the one scene and then isn't in the rest of the movie. Mm. So mm -hmm. that's, that's I would brutal. be like, oh, hey, John, how are you doing? And then that would be my big moment. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, right. So good. And you would be the one at the end of the movie, like reading the newspaper article. It's <laughs> exactly. like teen slaughtered. Yeah. <laughs> Whoa, I love John Incredible. so much. <laughs> and uh that's all i'm gonna say about that because kedavis is dumb i felt i did think the image of like the stuff pouring into her mouth and stuff was terrifying it was terrifying and great so it's uh, it's really good and i mean yeah. I, look we needed we needed to know that the dying god was in clip you know we needed that confirmation so like we had to sacrifice somebody for it i'm glad it wasn't skin tick yeah who i kind of like but also was a little annoying so I was very curious with the use of the word godling here because they also use the word godling when uh, Kataspala talks to yes. Ditch. Uh, yes. Which is interesting. Yeah, I did catch that too, AJ, and it's very interesting. It's very weird. But, like, I, you know, like we know that it's the dying god, right? And we know that Ditch isn't. Ditch isn't the dying god. So we no, already no, no, know they're that different. They're, they're, they're different. They're different. Know, I know, but it's just like interesting that 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 has never been brought like that phrase or word has never been like a part of the series now all of a sudden it's twice in the same chapter mm -hmm. anyway do you uh aj do you think we're setting up an amander to to perhaps take the place of his estranged father <sighs> hmm I don't think so. I think we're I think that's a red herring. Honestly, I think really? Namander, I think Namander ends up dead. 
Oh, I would be so upset. Um, I think, but I think he he ends up doing something that like nobody else would, and it, he's similar in, in to Animander Rake in the way that uh, Ditch in the last the last episode, uh, Ditch talked about, or no, no, sorry, a few episodes ago, uh, um, Absalara talked about how nobody would do what Animander Rake does, not even Draconis, uh, and so I think I think Namander is like Animander Rake in that way. Uh, and not in the like he's gonna take his place. He's just gonna do something that like needs to be done, and you know when it needs to be done. And I think it's gonna end up costing him his life. Yeah, I, I, I think that could totally track. Yeah, wouldn't it be sad, but I could. See I th- it. Yeah, I make it, honestly. I've, I, if you told me eight hundred pages ago that I would care that Namander died, I'd be like, mm, I mean, honestly, I'd probably be like, yeah, right? maybe. But, um, but no, now I, I definitely feel a, a, a bit upset. And then I, I'm gonna bring us now to a very harsh tonal shift okay and it's interesting because while reading it i definitely love this kind of break from the seriousness but like it is a touch jarring and i am of course talking about gruntle and company Mm -hmm. uh, on their continued quest to deliver mapo possibly kind of close to where they are actually for maybe and uh and of course this wild scene with this little town which feels so much like it could just be from a corbel brooch and bocaline novella you know <laughs> it could, could be its, its own, own separate st- little yeah. thing uh yeah. did you did you enjoy it uh aj I, I like you said it was like tonally weird so i was kind of toned out the whole time or tuned out the whole time um mm-hmm. and i just kept waiting for it to like solidify or crystallize into something and it just i don't feel like it really did for me and then it ended on this like men be fucking like that was like yeah. the, the, the end yeah. of the thing was like guys want to want to want to bang yeah um i don't know i will i'll say this i think that through line joke of every time quell speaks all three women would be like get it together quell <laughs> keep it like that fucking got me every even gruntle at the end he's like maybe we should get going and they're like yeah you'd like that wouldn't you <laughs> so i thought that was absolutely incredible yeah pete on a second read i am i'm very curious on a second read when with these little one-off asides do you appreciate them do you blast through them at the speed of light where are you at with these kind of things that are not you know overarching plot important i think it really uh depends on the day i would say Mm -hmm. i think if it's definitely some moods i'm like oh cool it's like i'm having a chill time but then definitely some days i'm like yeah this is i would just like i would rather go touch into the character i'm more invested in or go into another section but you know i also Mm -hmm. think yeah so i also kind of find asides like this sometimes they on in retrospect i find them a touch annoying because they they sometimes break established rules or what we think are established rules for example jack huts are very incredibly rare and almost impossible for the general population to find except in this town where they're ruled by two of them and those kind of weird little things always throw me off because i'm like hmm but we have an unstoppable undead force that is always trying to kill them. And Josh, how they've just... Josh, Josh, yes, Josh, Peter. Josh. Here's a counter. I would say uh-huh. almost everything is crazy rare and you're actually never going to bump into it at all. Except, however, there is one nearby that will be in this <laughs> yes. story. <laughs> yeah. That, uh, you know what? Actually, that perfectly summarizes it. Thank you, Peter. But, but um, to be fair... It makes sense because obviously they're going to show up in the story. So they want to introduce like I would it would be weird if they were like this. And then there's this crazy thing. 
end of story yeah, yeah, like that's yeah and they never show you know? i i hear you i hear you and correct me if i'm wrong geographically peter yes. mappo's goal was to get from one end of genabacus to the other side of it because there's something over there can you re- can you refresh us on where he's going he's he's looking for a carium in some vague sense i'm gonna i'm gonna leave you hanging okay <laughs> Am I correct that am I correct that he's trying to travel from the eastern part of Genabacus to the west, and they've ended up on, I believe they said, the southern tip of Genabacus? He's looking for a car- right? he's looking for a carium. All right, good talk, good talk. Lastly, we have what seems to be a very dramatic, perhaps final exit from Andamander Rake, mm-hmm. who walks into the woods, observed. Only by Enda Salon. And there's a scene with the high priestess earlier, too, which is also kind of sad. Yeah, I was but, just skimming through it to see if there was anything, but it really is just yeah. sad. Yeah, I mean, there. Are, I, look, again, this is one of those things where this could be like a huge cipher turning point, like the son of darkness going in and he's going to end darkness. I don't know. We'll yeah. find out. I do love um, the part uh, when he's talking to high priestess where she's like, can you stop looking at my desk and look at me? And then he looks at her and she's oh like, my God, oh, my yes. God, his eyes are crazy. And then he looks back away because uh, he's got such beautiful, uh, you know, galaxy eyes or whatever. And at the end of that section, he says, you are always my favorite. And she says, me or the desk you seem to love. <laughs> uh, which I just thought was a really great line. Uh, the, the whole scene is very good. Yeah. These are the kind of scenes that I feel like I really, I really savor and think back on in the moment. I'm always like, okay, well, I'll, you also, I'll think on you later. Also, it's, it's one of these moments where you like, I feel like you have an interaction with Amanda Rake as like a person who's around. Yes. And not as like everyone being like, Oh my God, there he is. Mm-hmm. Or just like talking mm-hmm. about his mythic sorrow, you know. So it's just it's interesting to see him. Just I, like I, talking about his mythic sorrow is a such a choice turn of phrase. <laughs> you know what I mean? I love it. It's, you're exactly right. And I think that wraps up both chapter eighteen and book four of Toll the Hounds. Yeah. And uh, AJ, you're the only one here who can make a prediction. That's right. <laughs> so yeah. Just well, here, has, let, yeah. let me step in. India has India has ducked out early. I hope. She is feeling well. She did not seem well, which is now we're two for four for leaving podcasts halfway through them because of being hungover. So we're um, three for four. Oh, because of being hungover. Sorry. Who's I, left? Have you left? Well, AJ I, I left also because left I had to go. Early. I had to get call, I got called into work. Oh, I forgot about that. Yeah. I really regret not coming on the Krampus episode of the show. Not that um, I liked that movie. In fact, it was a bad movie, and you guys said it was a good movie, and I watched it because you (laughs) told me to, and I was like, actually, this was a huge... Anyway, because that's the only episode of the show I haven't been on, so I feel like I'm like, damn, I feel... Anyway, let's talk about the books. So, Josh, do you have a big prediction for going into the final final part of Toll the Hounds? Let me think. I'm sure there's a storyline we've left for a while that's going to creep back up as, you know, very, you know what, actually, I probably, I think what's going to be the most impactful storyline is going to be whatever the Malazans do, because if they take off on like a path of destruction, that's probably going to incite a lot of the other cogs that have been turning. So I have a feeling that they may go for revenge ill-advisedly and it will set off uh some events that's my guess interesting what about you producer aj um i'm going back now to see where book two ended and book two also ended on 
Animander Rake. Oh no, sorry, it was Animander Rake, and then it was Kalor talking about uh, taking the throne. So I was just seeing if if we had any like huge events that we we've been leaving. But I'm curious about uh, the involvement of of Krupp here in this in this final book because Krupp is the one telling this story, and Krupp, you know, generally seems to have a hand in everything just because Krupp is Krupp. Mm-hmm. But I am curious in Krupp's actual involvement. Uh, in in the plot, so I imagine there's going to be some Krupp and like Carol stuff, maybe. But I but I, I I just don't know. I just don't know. I'm curious to see what happens with Dragnapur. I'm excited for it to explode or something. I don't know. And I'm excited to see Clip be bisected. Hopefully. Oh, interesting. <laughs> yeah, and I mean we have some actual intru- like we have actual Cripple God stuff happening now. So now I'm actually kind of see I'm. I think the end of this book is going to be some crazy crippled god thing that is going to propel us into 9 and 10. That's that's what I have to imagine. We'll see, I guess. Mm-hmm. Can't wait. Well, that... Oh, PDF no, you, you, you end up, buddy. All right. Well, that, that wraps up this episode. We hope you've enjoyed it. And if you didn't, don't write in. Uh, you can catch us at... Insert the Twitter here. AJ? I'll say it all Whoa. after this. We don't have to. Okay. All right. AJ's going to do a wrap-up bit. That's yeah. all I've got. And, of course, as we end every episode, um, I was trying to think of something funny to say. I got nothing. When I say come, you say how high. <laughs> how high. <laughs> We're not doing it. Goodbye. <laughs> wow. Hello, everybody. Producer AJ here, and I'm standing. Thank you so very much for listening to this episode of the podcast. If you'd like to give us your thoughts or feelings about this or any of our episodes, you can always email us at 10verybigbooks at gmail.com. Tweet us at 10verybigbooks, or you can head on over to Discord, bit.ly slash Discord. That's capital V, capital B, capital B, capital D. Discord, that link will also be in the show notes. Thank you to all of our wonderful patrons over on Patreon. Uh, Like I said, we just released that Star Trek episode that we recorded with our friend, uh, Pete and I recorded with our friend Nate about six months ago. Uh, You can get that for just $1 on our Patreon. If you'd like to financially support the show, you can head on over to patreon.com slash 10verybigbooks. That link is also in the show notes. And... As always, thank you so very much to Dan Gezerick for making our spectacular cover art. You can follow him on Twitter at A underscore W underscore Dan G for the hottest Philadelphia arena location takes. And of course, the wonderful music in today's episode, including the remixed intro and outro track, is by the one, the only Amaranthin from his album Simulant Rain, which you can find along with his other music, including the remixed intro and outro track, uh, on Bandcamp.com. Links to their pages will be in the show notes, and 10 very big books will be back in two weeks on August 5th talking about chapters 19, 20, and 21 of Toll the Hounds. I'll talk to you then, and thank you so much for listening. <laughs>